it's great to be with you today, continuing on the series, Nehemiah, looking at chapter 9, um, where we're going to be looking at um, the people of God as they really pray this confession to God, really seeking a spiritual renewal, um, a, a spiritual rebuilding almost. And as Joe spoke last week, um, a powerful message where he reminded us that even in our darkest and our lowest places, that shouldn't turn us away from God, but actually should help us to come straight back to him. Um, and as we begin um, this sermon, I want to ask us a couple of questions, if I may. Well, how many of us have maybe been in the wrong and we've known that we've been in the wrong? Maybe we've hurt somebody or mistreated somebody. Um, but for one reason or another, instead of confessing and saying what we've done wrong, we've given ourselves or allowed our minds the time to think of all these different reasons, uh, justifications and excuses as to why our actions took place. Maybe we've seen someone hurt or mistreated or an injustice has taken place and we have been silent. Um, maybe we wanted to say something or do something, but actually there was this kind of fearful inertia inside of us that kept us from speaking up or saying something. I wonder if you've been in that position before. Um, I definitely have, and, and I guess this, this, this today is so apt to help us think about what it means to confess what repentance looks like. And, and we're going to really pick up three key things from this passage. And because this prayer in many ways that we're going to encounter in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 is firstly a prayer of confession for the people of God. And also they're praying to confess the sins of their fathers. And we get a picture firstly of who God is throughout this prayer. We get a picture of his love, of his mercy, of his continued faithfulness, even when people are faithless. Secondly, we see the heart of man, which is desperately wicked. And we see the sin and the continual sin and the kind of failure, if you would, of humanity itself. And thirdly, we see these two things converge. We see the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and our sin come together. And we also see the grace of God in the midst of all of this, who continually time and time again forgives us of the things that we have done wrong. Like the people of Israel, we are in need of spiritual rebuilding. And so as we read this passage, I do pray and hope that, Lord, that it really blesses us and gives us the tools that we need to come before God for healing and renewal. Let's read the word of God. Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of, God, of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worship to the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadamil, Shibaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, Kaniah, and they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadamil, Bunai, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Jodiah, Shibaniah, Pethaniah, said, Stand and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are God. You made the heavens and the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heavens worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the earth of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. 
You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to, to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians had treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains today. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through on it on dry land. You held their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right. And your decrees and your commands, they are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws for your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and possess and take possession of the land that you have sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return them to slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, or when they committed awful, awful blasphemies, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine by the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not hold, withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotted them even to the foremost frontiers. They took over the country of Shion, king of Heshbon, the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky and you brought them into the land and you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before, the, you, you subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land you gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the people of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and they were well nourished. They reveled in your goodness, but they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, 
they did again what was evil in your sight. They abandoned them to the land of the, to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances of which you said a person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of neighboring people. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us on our kings, our elders, on our priests, our prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the king of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in your kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are today, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is the word of God. So Nehemiah 9 essentially begins with this six-hour church service. Three hours they spend reading the word of God, another three hours in confession and in um, worship. I don't know about you, but I don't know if, um, if Steve decided next week that we're going to have a six-hour church service. I don't know, half nine to half three, how many of you would be eager to get to the church buildings to be there for it? Don't worry, that's, that's not going to happen. But essentially, this is how the chapter starts. It's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, and probably for very good reason, because people, the people of God are in a desperate situation. And this heartfelt confession is a repentance of sin, and I'm wanting to restore this relationship with God, because they are aware of God's redemptive acts, and they are aware that they have acted sinfully before him. There's an old Scottish proverb, it's turned into an idiom in the 1800s, which says confession is good for the soul. And I'm sure many of us agree with that. We know that to be true. We have probably been in situations where you, you know you feel that mental, that emotional kind of prison of like knowing that you've done wrong. You haven't really kind of confessed and spoken up about it. So you kind of harbour that guilt even inside your own heart and it can haunt the most upstanding and seemingly good person. The only thing is, is that I guess the word of God pushes even beyond even the idioms of our, of our day, even the worldly wisdom, which in many ways comes from biblical references, but often misses the, the kind of the key theological truths. It misses who God is at the end of the day. For us to really understand the aspects of wrong that we have done, 
We have to have an absolute standard. We have to know what is true, what is good, what is actually beautiful, so we can live our lives differently in view of it. At the beginning, I asked a series of questions. That wasn't to put anyone on the spot or make you feel uncomfortable. I guess it was really to help us realize that despite our best efforts, we can often fall short. Despite our, our desires to want to do the right thing, often there can be many reasons why we, why we mess up, why we, we don't help people who are in desperate need, why we hurt people even, even the people that are closest to us. Our goodness can often be contingent upon our livelihoods, our, our jobs, the things that, that, we, that, are, that we crave, our selfishness even. Sometimes we don't know the difference between right or wrong and we're really trying to figure it out. We might lack conviction of what is really true, what is really the right way to go. And we need a plumb line of truth and so did the people of God in chapter nine. They like us, they need a vision for godly living. And in 2 Timothy, Timothy 3.16, we are reminded that the word of God it is firstly, it's God breathed and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and also training in righteousness. The word of God is our worldview, it's our Christian worldview. It helps us to figure out what is good, what is right, and what is wrong in the world. And therefore we can live in the good of it. And so this prayer of confession that we see, these many beautiful, wonderful verses, they start with this usual kind of assembly of somberness. There's, there's sackcloth and there's the ashes. There's this kind of idea that they've done wrong and they need to separate themselves. The Bible talks about the relationships, the foreigners that had come in and they intermarried. And that's all about being pure, being right before God. Remembering that actually God wanted a separate people that are set apart and weren't taking customs and idols and religions from others, but were focused on the one true God. But notice this prayer, it begins at the very beginning from magnifying God and, and historically recounting all of the goodness, all of the, the bounties, all of the ways that God has delivered his people. And this prayer moves from Abraham to Abraham. It speaks about the inheritance that the people of God have received. But notice the people didn't come to God with a shopping list. First and foremost, they didn't come with a desperate plea or a cry of what they want from God. They came back telling God of his goodness, of his wonder, of his majesty, of his faithfulness in the midst of their faithlessness. And I love the way um, Frederick um, Buchner puts it. I want to read a quote and he says this, to confess your sin to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are an abyss between you. When you confess them, they become a bridge. And boy, did the people of God need a bridge. Let's just recount a few things that God has done for the people of God. And I'm going to list a few. He's rescued them from Pharaoh in Egypt. God's made a name for himself. He's parted the Red Sea that they could walk across on dry land. He led them with a cloudy pillar and fire by night. He came down on Mount Sinai. He met with Moses, gave them just laws and commandments, provided bread from heaven when they were hungry provided water from a rock when they were thirsty. He told them that they were possessed the land, the land full of milk and honey, and he led them into it. And you would have thought maybe after all of that, after all that God had done, they would have lived for him faithfully. They would have served him truly, and they would have put him first in their lives. And in many ways, like us, we, we, we just don't do that, do we? We act and live in rebellion so often. Despite God's goodness towards them, they acted in rebellion. And at this point in time in their history, they were in desperate need of confessing because they needed rescue. 
They needed a bridge to be built. So what are we confronted with? The goodness of God. We've seen that on clear display as the prayer recounts time and time and time again, God coming through for his people. But secondly, as I mentioned, we also see this persistent sin and this failure in our humanity. In 2 Timothy 2.13, God gives us an insight into, into why this, this rebellion, this human rebellion is, is, so, is so persistent. And I guess it is because that we are faithless and we don't trust God. We turn away from him so often, but he doesn't turn away from us. And why? Because the word of God tells us that he can't disown himself. He can't deny himself. It's who he is. It's his very character and definition. God is good. He is faithful. I remember when I was around sort of 19, 20, um, I hadn't yet become a Christian. I hadn't put my faith in Jesus. And um, yeah, I was, I, I, I was okay in a sense that I had a job, a decent job. I, I was driving. I, I had you know, family and friends around. I had an active social life. But I was also living a bit of a mess. I was in and out of various different relationships and with women, and it, it was just a bit of a, a nightmare situation. Things weren't going that well at the same time on one hand. And you know, as I sort of started really um, look at the Bible and the word of God and, and what Christianity had to offer for me. I mean, I was a child of the church. I grew up in the church, but I didn't really know God. And it came to this stage where I realized that I had to confess for some of the sins that I have had done. I had to repent before God and in many ways build bridges or attempt to build bridges with some of the people that I had hurt as well. And it was a challenging process. And I remember at one point really feeling that between myself and God that there was this kind of, this void almost. It's almost like having a best, it felt like having a best friend and hiding a, a kind of a truth, a, a not, not a truth, sorry, a, almost like a secret from them and not telling them. And you kind of know that you're cool, but there's something that isn't quite right. But the moment I confessed before God, I remember just feeling a release of peace and acceptance and forgiveness and love. And for me, that was my journey to faith in many ways. That's what led me to Christ. And I really found forgiveness in Jesus after I went to him with my stuff, with my mess. And, and I said, sorry. I confessed the things that I did, I'd done. I spoke these words out, these things that I would rather not say. And God forgave me, restored me, and gave me in many ways a new name, brought me into the family of God. But here's the challenge though. Many of us living where we are in the West, we, we can often be led by the flesh and maybe not necessarily the word of God and the standard that God has called us to. Um, there's something that I quote, it's, it's, it's funny, but not actually that funny. There's an um, African-American professor, Cornel West, he, he mentions that in, in our society, there's this kind of culturally cemented 11th commandment, which is thou shall not get caught. Um, and I feel like that just kind of rings true for so many of the, the situations we find ourselves in. It's not necessarily about what's good or what's right, but whether I'm going to get caught or found out. And that can be very problematic for us. But if we look at the picture of who God has been and who God always is in the midst of everything we go through, we look at the story of the people of God and how he's been with them every step of the way, we realise that we can come to him. We can confess the things that we've done wrong and we can definitely be healed. It's often said that sin is an outdated word and that people that aren't Christians aren't really bothered much about that word. And that might hold some truth, but I guess the Bible is full of real people. And we see the human condition so clearly in the word of God. Paul, when he's speaking to his spiritual son, Timothy, he, he references um, a passage, but he really wants him to be aware that in this day and age, 
People will be lovers of themselves, of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unloving, and, and the list goes on. And, and I guess we even see that throughout scripture. We look at Adam and Eve, the fall. We look at Cain and Abel, the blood crying out in the ground to God. We see in Genesis 6 with Noah, and, and, and God even quotes and says to himself, as you see, he reads out in the text, the wickedness of man in, in this earth is great. People are continually evil, and it grieves the heart of God. From Old Testament to New Testament, there's consistent rebellion on our part. It might seem like a trivial example, but driving around in southeast London, it's interesting that, you know, sometimes you get in those situations where someone cuts somebody up, the typical kind of road rage. But I, I think about road rage probably too much for the average person. But when I process it, I think you can get the most innocent and seemingly harmless people that seem so nice on the outside. And the moment somebody cuts them up, they turn into a monster. And it's actually scary. Like sometimes I'm like, wow, like I don't know what you're actually capable of. I mean, this is only a car. Like who knows what your life and like in the rest of your life. Like, it's actually scary. It's just a snapshot. But in all seriousness, just like the children of Israel, we can be like that as well. We can seemingly look like we're okay on the outside, but on the inside, we're, we're full of sin and corruption. And, we haven't confessed that or released that we hold on to it. And we see these flashpoints where it just pops out and it's really challenging and it can be in sometimes very ugly. But we're also blessed. And as the scripture tells us, God has never let us down. In verse 34 and 35, what we see from the Israelites is that throughout society, from the top to the bottom, it speaks about the kings, the priests, and the fathers. They've all rejected God's law. And in other passages of scripture, we know that the word of God tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. And I've just finished reading a book called Assembly by a British writer, a black British writer, female called Natasha Brown. And it's, it's a really interesting novel, a very short novel where she speaks about this, this girl who worked in the financial services for 10 years. But the kind of the, the heart of it, and I'm not going to put any spoilers out there for anyone who's going to read it, is someone who's got everything that they want in life. Work hard, upwardly socially mobile, money, got assets, working really hard. But there's a sense in the midst of like injustice, there's a sense of like worthlessness. There's a sense of, is this what life is really about? A sense of demoralizing existence. What is the purpose of life? And often the way that we live our lives can be destructive and unhealthy. We know for the children of Israel, a few idols had led to them turning away from God. A few relationships that weren't right had led their hearts away from God. But even in our day, the kind of the hype of achievement and success can turn our hearts away from God in the very same way. Success and progression can turn into the golden calf, just like it did for the children of Israel, where we prostrate before it. But towards the end of this prayer, there's a sense of regret a sense of pain, a moment of face facts. Let's deal with the situation. Years and years of rebellion and rejection, widespread sin. And now the land that God had given them to possess was owned by foreign kings. The land that they were given to enjoy was enjoyed by foreign kings. They lived under duress. Their bodies weren't their own. Their animals weren't their own, as it said in verse 37. So the history of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, is the grounds for this pledge, this commitment, 
this covenant that they want to enter into, the bridge that they want to build before God to enter in right relationships because they are aware of the sins of their fathers and of their own sin. And what do we see at the end? We see the convergence of these two realities. We see their sin, but we see the love and the grace and the mercy of God come together. The mercy of God meets our total depravity and our consistent willful sin. It's a sobering prayer. As I said before, it's a, it's a face facts moments when they see their history. But as the people recommitted to God, they recommitted to the covenant. We as a New Testament people, we have a new covenant in which the laws of God are inscribed on our very own hearts and written in our minds. For those of us who have put our faith in, in Jesus, God remembers, promises to remember our sins no more. What we saw through this powerful prayer is grace upon grace. He extended mercy in the face of rebellion, forgiveness in the face of idolatry and love in the face of rejection. But as the goodness and the mercy of God interfaces with the wickedness of people, our human state, we need a vision that is beyond ourselves. Bible promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and God promises to remove our sins as far as from the east to the west so we can turn back to God he promises cleansing and refreshing a a spiritual rebuilding maybe you're here today and you want to confess your sins you want to confess the things that that haven't been right in your life you want to speak those words out to God to the one who is able to save the one who is able to heal the one who is able to make right You want to build that bridge. The truth is Jesus is that bridge. He is the son of God. He is the one who came down to die for us when we were in our mess, in our our rebellion before God. And he is the perfect sacrifice. He brought in a new covenant for us. So just as the people of God in Nehemiah 9 made a covenant before God, maybe even today you'd want to make a covenant before God. Maybe you're strayed and you want to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I confess the things that I've gone done wrong and I want to put my life back in track by centering it on you. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus before. And then you now you realise that actually trying to figure this out by myself without that plumb line, the truth of who God is and how he's called us to live and what his son has done makes no sense. But today it might make sense to you for the first time and you might want to put your faith in Jesus. We're in the moment we're going to read out a prayer of confession, a prayer that allows us to come before God and repent and seek forgiveness and healing and spiritual rebuilding.